0: father's day. There is a difference between fathers and mothers. You might be aware of that. For instance, uh, the playground, the children are climbing, maybe the jungle gym or a tree. A mother will say, you're going too high. You need to come down. You're going to hurt yourself. What will a father say? I bet you can go higher. In fact, if you go even a little higher and jump, I will catch you. That's what a father says. Um, A child comes into the room in the middle of the night afraid of the monster in their closet. A mother will give some care, maybe even go in the room, maybe open the closet, look inside, put a lamp in there for them, maybe bring them into the bed. What does a father do? He'll open one eye and say, I promise you, you will not get eaten by a monster tonight. But if you wake me up again, I cannot guarantee your safety. (laughs) Uh, when a mother gets on the floor to play with their small children, the likelihood of a child accidentally getting a bloody nose is, I would say, very minimal. But when a father gets on the floor to play with their children, everyone knows what's at risk. There's probably gonna be an injury. At least a rug burn across the face, you know, right before the kid has a doctor's appointment or something like that. Fathers and mothers are different creatures. And I don't know if these things are right or wrong. They just are what they are. Um, I don't know if it's wrong for a for a father to handcraft swords for their children. I don't know if it's wrong for fathers to destroy their young children playing games like Candyland and hi ho Cherry I don't know if that's wrong. I have opinions on it, but I can't say for certain whether that's wrong or whether that's right. Um, but... There are some definitive rights and wrongs that we find in this objective word of truth. And so let us set our eyes upon that word and then fuse our lives to the truths that we find here. So I'd encourage you to find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're going to be looking primarily today at verses 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians 16 And as you get there, let's, let's read it together out loud from the screen. Would you? Let's follow me. Let's read it together out loud. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, I recall giving a Mother's Day sermon a month ago or so and And it was a very honoring tone. Uh, I think it was basically calling us to honor our mothers better and setting out good examples that we saw in Scripture of mothers. And I noticed that after I finished the sermon today, I noticed the tone is is distinctly different in this sermon. I am going to level both barrels of God's Word upon you men, and I'm going to pull that trigger with all my might. And I think God is calling us to a biblical manhood that by and large... Is missing in much of the church, big C, the whole church, the church universal today. So as we look at this passage, note, uh, in the middle there, act like men. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Um, there are places in, uh, 1 Corinthians that are addressing, addressing women specifically, and there's other places that are addressing men specifically. This may be also addressing women, and if certainly there's plenty of takeaways for every woman here. Um, the command there literally is, some translations change it to be courageous, but the, the term literally is be manly. It's a call to be manly. And so I want to look at what what is that calling us as men? What does it mean for a man, biblically, to be manly? And so firstly, let's, let's articulate what men are not. If we are to act like men, let's eliminate three possibilities of what men certainly are not. And I'm gonna take a stand on this. And it, it it hardly seems like a line in the sand, but here I stand nonetheless. I'm gonna preach what used to be ridiculously obvious and in today's culture is no longer obvious. But if you are to be a man, that means first of all, be a man, not a child. Not a child. Turn back just a, a page or two to 1 Corinthians 13. And in verse 11, you see Paul testify. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Men are not children. And this is a thread that Paul keeps pulling Throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, or perhaps I should say a a scab he keeps picking at throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. First of all, he brings it up in chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3, where he says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you milk when I was with you, when he planted the church. Not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. So they haven't matured. They're still spiritual children. And then in, in chapter 14 and verse 20, again, he says... Do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In chapter, uh, 16 and verse 13 then, he gives us this command. In 1311, he gives us, I think, another one, if I, unless I missed that. In chapter 13 and verse 11, oh, that's the one where Paul spoke. But each time, he keeps, he keeps reiterating, you guys are childish. You need to be mature. It's almost like he's getting louder and louder as he makes his way through the book until finally in our passage, he just says, Act like men. Men should not be childish. And men, you may have hair on your knuckles and be 40 pounds overweight and have a full time job and a mortgage and kids, but that doesn't make you a man. What are the distinctions of a child? Children are generally low in responsibility. Low in productivity. Low in maturity. The expectations of contribution are minimal for a child. Leisure is a priority for a child. Duty is avoided by children. I can guarantee you when I ask my kids in general to do something, some of them are quite attentive. Daniel is always missing. He sneaks out of the room. As soon as I start asking someone to do something, he's gone. His children tend to avoid responsibility. Men must be men. You are not children. Nothing is worse than a 40-year-old male that is still a boy, has never grown into adulthood. Be a man, not a child. Secondly, be a man, not a woman. Again, it, just, it doesn't seem like I should have to articulate this, but in fact, some would even say this is controversial. Now, these passages we're looking at in these first three uh, points, uh, they're really kind of incidental observations. Paul's not necessarily striking at that point, but what our takeaway is true nonetheless. So look at chapter 11, in verse starting in verse 11, where it says, "...in the Lord woman is not independent of the man, nor is man independent of the woman." For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of the woman and all things are from God. So they're each dependent on each other. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? He's, he's articulating that women need to have their heads covered when they pray. He says, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her As a covering, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, regardless of what is strictly being taught in this passage, one thing we know for sure, there is a distinction between men and women. And we have no further to go than the testimony of Jesus Christ when He said, from the beginning, God created them. Man and woman, He created them both. And this is... uh, This is a growing pressure in our culture, the androgenization of the sexes. And we have to teach our children well. We have to be on guard. How many, I mean, we see the signs around town, rainbow over the bridge. And there, I guarantee you, there are people that claim the name of Christ that are affirming this assault on the natural order. And you don't have to go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. To teach this truth, you go to the words of Christ, you go to the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1 verses 26 and 27, it describes homosexuality as being dishonorable, unnatural, shameless, and in error. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, it puts it on a list and it described it as unrighteousness. And it says those who practice this will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10, again, there's a list. Homosexuality is included in it. And also in that list is human slavery, human trafficking. And he says these are contrary to sound doctrine. And maybe you've heard the argument that Sodom and Gomorrah, their true sin was inhospitality, which is ridiculous. Um, In Jude chapter 7, it makes it very clear that Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. Men are men. Women are women. God created them differently. Neither is inferior to the other. Men, we must be men. And we must define our manhood not by societal standards, whether they be today's society or our father's society 50, 60 years ago. That's not how we define manhood. We define it biblically. We go to familiar passages such as Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25 where it says the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And I've said it before, but men, listen to me. We hear it, we agree with it, but do we do it? That means in the home life, a man comes first in certain categories. He comes first when it's time to suffer. He's first in line. He comes first when it's time to sacrifice. He's first in line. When it's time to protect, when it's time to provide, When it's time to yield and to lead others, that's the husband's role. Men must be men, not children, not women. And unfortunately, we have to say it be a man, not an animal. Again, turn back one page to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 39. It's amazing how scripture answers. Every objection that modern society puts up, no matter what kind of intellect they might put behind it, it this seems pretty obvious. Fifteen thirty nine. For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. We are not animals. You know, Mark Twain had a humorous quote that said, um, "Humans are the on- only animals that blush, and they are the only animals that need to blush." And he's, it's he humorous, but he's striking on a, a really important and interesting observation here that if we allow ourselves to be reduced to animals, as is the push, by the way, if I can interrupt myself here, that's one of the, one of the arguments about homosexuality being completely natural and, and, um, and normal is that animals, some animals engage in sexual, in homosexual activity. Okay, I'm I'm not an animal. I am a human being. Animals eat their young also. We don't do that. We are different than the animals. And when we allow ourselves to be reduced to animals, we conveniently fall below the threshold of moral responsibility. But my concern is that men in the church and in their private lives and in their homes behave more Brutish than they do godly. The King James used that word brutish four times. It's not a word you hear very often anymore. You may not even be able to find it in the dictionary anymore, but every time they use it, it's talking about they have the senses of an animal. In other words, they're not using the brains that God gave them. And the New Testament talks about this often. Colossians 3.5 says to put to death your, your earthly passions, the passions that are like the earth. Galatians 5.19 talks about our flesh works being ruled by sensuality. Our senses drive us. Philippians 3.9, speaking of people who's who have an unsatiated appetite for present satisfaction, he says their God is their belly. These are people that are driven by appetite. I hope this doesn't describe you men. Driven by appetite, by natural instinct, by animal cravings for sex, and for food, and for sleep, and for aggression. We are men, we are not animals, who leverage our strength over the weak to get our way. So, not a child, not a woman, not an animal. We are not childish, we are not androgynous, we are not brutish. We are men. Act like men. So knowing what God what a man is not now, let's turn our attention again to verses thirteen and fourteen and determine what exactly are we to be then? And we see four defining words um, to define your masculinity, your manhood. These four words carry four ideas that run parallel to the man to the command given to us to act like men. Just in case we don't know what manhood is we have some parallel thoughts that will help direct us at least in the right direction. And the first word we see at the beginning of verse 13 is watchful. Men, you must be watchful. That means that you are called to be a shepherding, protective, vigilant spiritual force in your home always on guard against the satanic schemes that never rest. Always on guard against the satanic schemes that never rest. Peter learned this lesson the hard way. Remember in the garden, on the cusp of Christ's death, when he says, Jesus pulls the disciples aside and he says, Watch, be watchful. Watch and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And what did Peter do? Men, what did he do? He fell asleep. And then Jesus comes again, watch and pray, falls asleep. And then Jesus, you couldn't, you couldn't watch with me one hour? I think this was a lesson that stuck with Peter the rest of his life. Because by the time he writes the book of First Peter, he, in 1 Peter 5.8, can we put that verse up there, Caleb? 1 Peter 5.8, about being watchful for your ab. There it is, be sober-minded and watchful. Remember, this is the guy that fell asleep on the watch. He says now to his followers, be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Men, we have to be watchful against Satan, against temptations, against sin that is seeking to find its way into our homes and it never comes from where you expect it to. So you must be watchful. You know, if I had a, a, a cage about the size of that organ over here and it was covered in a sheet, and at this point in the sermon I came and I ripped the sheet off and you saw a roaring lion in there, the mood would change, wouldn't it? Everyone here would be thinking, okay, how, how smart is Ryan? Is he smart enough to secure this lion so I don't have to usher my family out in a hurry? And then if I took the pin out of the cage and swung the door open, for sure the, the mood would change. We need to be just as watchful because sin is so much more dangerous. And it comes in, it's looking for a way to destroy your family, to destroy your marriage, to destroy your testimony, to destroy your faith. And it's going to come in any way that it can. Men, you must be watchful. Oftentimes in Scripture, watchfulness is associated with prayer. Again, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2. I think we have that. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Men, if you want to evaluate whether you are truly being spiritually watchful over your life and over your family's life. If you are not praying, you are not being watchful. If you are not praying, for your strength, for your leadership, for your purity, for your character, if you're not praying for your family's spiritual protection, for their growth and maturity, if you're not praying to be on guard against all kinds of manners of evil that will seep in from the society around us, if you're not praying, you are not being watchful. Watchfulness, secondly, requires that you are going to have to be firm. That's the second word we see. Be watchful. Stand firm. Stand firm. And this is definitely not prescribing a firm hand on your family. Rather, this is a firm hand on your faith. Firm in the faith. The man whose entire faith has been handed to him will just as easily let it go. But the man who wrestles with his faith, questions it and proves it, studies it out, discovers it, lives it puts it into the, lives it through the trial under fire and stands by his faith that's a man who will hold firm to the faith what kind of man are you are you a faithful man in church but a different kind of man on tuesday nights or in the break room around the guys what kind of man are you when your wife is out of town and you have the weekend to yourself are you firm in the faith what kind of man are you when the rest of the family is sleeping and you're restless. Where do you go? Do you go to the word to find what God is leading you to, to deepen and strengthen your faith, firm in the faith. Can I can I invite you to turn just quickly over to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. We see a deeper description of what this firmness of faith is. Philippians chapter 1 Oh I'm not gonna complain about the phones, but I miss the sound of papers moving when people had a turn in their Bible. Philippians chapter one and verse twenty seven. Listen to this. Maybe you can read it with your own eyes. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here we can observe a few things. First of all, firm in the faith means that the gospel that we believe, the gospel that you believe, men, is on display observably in the conduct and the course of your life. If there is a persistent sin that would embarrass you or discredit the gospel that you claim, you have a loose grip on the faith. You need to have a firm grip on the faith, and that faith is observable in your life. No one should ever be surprised that you're a believer. I I got someone's business card today, and I had a cross on it. I go, are you a believer in Jesus? And he said, yes, I am. I would known the guy for a while. I, I didn't know him well enough. But if you were to hand your business card to somebody else, would they be surprised to find out you're a believer? Really, I wasn't surprised because this guy conducted himself so well. How about you? Firm faith means that your faith is on display. Notice too that it's on display whether you're being observed firsthand or not. He says, whether I'm there or not, I hope to hear about it. Secondly, a firm faith means that you are rallying others to the cause of Christ. See what it says? Firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then you turn to chapter 4 and verse 1 and you see that this is kind of the forgotten context of chapter 3 verses 12 through 21 is fairly familiar and famous. But it ends with, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. What's he saying? Stand firm in the way that I just described. Stand firm in the Lord. So how did he just describe it? Not that I have already obtained this or I'm perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature in their thinking, think this way. And if anything, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. No going backwards. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their god is their belly. Their glory is in their shame. With minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait. We await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Stand firm in that way in the Lord, men. We must be firm. In our faith. We must be watchful. We must be firm. The third word that we see here in our passage in 1 Corinthians 16 be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Be strong. Strength is um, an interest, I think, in most men. They admire strength. They want to be strong. I was uh I read an article that his name is uh Jason Mamoa. He plays um, Aquaman. Thank you. So you see him. I wanted to put his picture up. Jeannie knew exactly who he was. I wanted to put his picture up, but I didn't think it'd be appropriate to put Jason Momoa's abs and man pecs on the screen in church. He's a big man. He's built like a superhero. He's over six foot tall, six foot two, I think, six foot three. Muscular. Women love him. Men want to be him. Very, very masculine. And I found out that he weighs exactly as much as I weigh. I thought, hmm, that's weird. We must carry our strength a little differently. <laughs> we admire strength. I talk to my boys all the time about feats of strength historically that we read about. Wilt Chamberlain and the strength that he had. He was standing on a on a wall on Venice Beach, a platform, and and Arnold Schwarzenegger was below him. They invited him up. He said, okay, I'll let me walk around. And Wilt just reached down, picked him up like a child and pulled him up. Strong men. Who do we look to for our strength? Who ought we to compare ourselves to when we are looking for strong men? We could go in the Old Testament and look at Samson. We could go to David. Remember David, not just a warrior, a mighty warrior. He fought, After he killed Goliath, Remember what he did? He killed him with the stone, walks up, takes Goliath's sword, chops his head off, and then he uses that sword for the rest of his life as his primary weapon. Strong man. Do we look to them for strength? No. None other than Jesus Christ, the strongest man to ever live. He will display that strength one day, and we will be behind him. Lord willing, you will be behind him. As he speaks the word, and armies are destroyed. Across the plains of Armageddon. But even in his life, he was the strongest man that, ever lived, man that ever lived. And yet, the strength was always controlled, always productive, never defensive, always used his strength to aid, whether he was calming a storm or casting out demons, always to help, never to hurt. Never just demonstrating strength for strength's sake, and we never seen the fullness of his strength. Men, we must be strong, but have a strength that is controlled, have a strength that is addressing the proper issues in life and in our homes. More than anything else, we need to demonstrate strength to to control ourselves, self control. We must be men of strength. We must be men that are firm. We must be men that are spiritually watchful for all that society is seeking to destroy and Satan and our own lusts of the flesh. And finally, we get to verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Love. Both the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment is love. And. It's amazing that right after saying, act like men, he says, and love in all that you do. The most repeated exhortation to husbands. If you go to a wedding, you're going to hear, men are to love their wives. Manhood is not balanced with love. Some, some people see it like that. Manhood is not balanced with love, but rather it's based upon it, built into it, saturated by it, Love is not the counterbalance that prevents masculinity from migrating to the extreme and twisting to the toxic. Rather, love is the divine characteristic that defines masculinity. Don't apologize for masculinity. Don't redefine it to appease our culture. Define it biblically. Masculinity grows out of love. The, the only father figure that accurately displays what masculinity is, is God. God chose to describe himself as a father. He's not a man, but he chose to display, to, um, communicate himself in the masculine. We didn't, we didn't just create this category of masculinity and then assign it to God. No, God created it. He said, I am your father, not your mother. Mothers are needed. They're, they're, we cannot we cannot raise a family without a mother. You need mothers. And you need fathers. But God is a Father. And God is not toxic. And God's fatherhood is not demented. Though we may see many examples of that. And God is love. You, if you don't know love, you don't know God. And so masculinity, I think, primarily should be defined by love. It's that divine love that Defines strength, it destri- de- uh, defines faithfulness, it defines watchfulness, and it defines true manhood. So are you loving men? Convincingly loving. Real love, you don't have to say it. You do say it, but you don't have to say it. Your family knows you are loved, uh, that they are loved by you. And love sacrifices. And love builds everyone up. You don't walk on eggshells around someone that's loving. Right, men? But if your family walks on eggshells around you, you've got some correcting to do. There should be no question, which dad are we getting tonight? Should always be the loving dad. The strong dad. The spiritually sound, firm dad who's on watch. Men, now more than ever, it is time to be manly. Act like men. Your family depends on it. Our culture hangs in the balance. Future generations are counting on it. God's people, your local church, are needful for biblical, godly, manly men. And if men don't stand in the gap, who will? I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. We're going to sing a song. I hope the Lord has convicted you of something. And you may feel overwhelmed. You may feel like a total failure as a man. Listen, take one thing that God has convicted you. Walk out of here with one determination. This is going to change in my life. And when you get out of this room and you get in the privacy of of your car, you tell your family right away, the Lord told me this, the Spirit has convicted me, I'm going to change this. You need to apologize and ask for forgiveness. You do it, but do it quick because the further away, it's going to be a lot harder to do it. Don't wait till you get home. Just walk out of here with one thing. This is what I'm going to change because God needs men in the church. He needs men in the family. He needs men in the faith.